So, John chapter 10, verses 22 to the end of the chapter um, are fascinating because this is the only biblical reference to the holiday Hanukkah. Um, This is the earliest first reference at all um, to Hanukkah as a festival, as a celebration. If you recall back when we did Leviticus 23 and we looked at the holy days of the uh, Hebrew community, you remember Hanukkah is not in there. Uh, Hanukkah uh, is a holiday that developed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why Hanukkah is not there in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. But then when we turn to the New Testament, there's just this text where all of a sudden Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is a festival that popped up between the Testaments. Let me give you a short, short version of the history and where Hanukkah comes from. Um, In 168 B.C., before Christ, uh, the Seleucid Greek Empire under Antiochus IV uh, conquered Jerusalem. These were Greeks who conquered Jerusalem. These were the... um, the heirs to Alexander the Great. These were Greeks that conquered Jerusalem. Uh, Antiochus IV, um, how can I say it? He was a crazy man uh, in so many ways. And we have a lot of record about Antiochus IV. Uh, some from, you have to go back to First Maccabees and Second Maccabees. You know those books that were written between the Old Testament and New Testament that are sort of secondary um, canon for us. Uh, we say they're good books. We say they should be read. Sometimes they're called the Apocrypha. Sometimes they're called the Deuterocanonicals. Uh, with Deuterocanonical just means second canon. Uh, as Protestants, we don't put them uh, in the Bible. We usually have them in a separate section of the Bible because we do what the Hebrew community does. Uh, the Hebrew community, they don't have them in the Bible. But the early Christian community used those books. Um, And even as Protestants, we say that they're important. In other words, uh, after you finish reading the Bible, uh, you know, don't go to the High Point Enterprise. Go to the Apocrypha. Read the Apocrypha. It's good stuff. It's just not on the same level as the rest of the Bible. But in order to get the story of Hanukkah, uh, you can get it out of 1st Maccabees or 2nd Maccabees. Here's the story. Antiochus Epiphanes was the ruler. He took over Jerusalem. He was a crazy man. He actually referred to himself uh, as uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the manifestation of God. Now, I'm sure you know some people that probably are that narcissistic, but that's how Antiochus IV was. was. The Jewish community started calling him uh, Antiochus Epimenes, which is Antiochus the crazy man. Because when he ruled, he was crazy and evil. When he ruled, um, you know, for him, Greek culture was everything. Greeks were, anybody that was not Greek was barbarian. And that's actually where the word barbarian comes from. It's someone who doesn't speak the Greek language. That's a barbarian. So uh, when Antiochus IV uh, conquered uh, Jerusalem, all that region, um, he tried to get rid of try to get rid of the Jewish faith. He outlawed kosher, keeping kosher. He outlawed uh, circumcision. He thought that was barbaric. Uh, He actually went to the temple and uh, offered pigs to Zeus on the temple altar there in Jerusalem. You can imagine how that went over in Jerusalem. 
Um, he actually started, he tried to wipe out Judaism by doing all that. But it, there, we have episodes in First and Second Maccabees where he would force Jews, try to force Jews to eat swine, eat pig. Uh, there's a powerful story uh, in the Maccabean literature of Hannah and her seven sons. All of them refused, one after one, one after another. All of them refused to eat pig. And uh, they all got killed. They, they, they sacrificed their lives rather than go against what they knew their, their faith to be. Anyway, so Antiochus was a crazy man. Uh, but God took care of the Jewish people, as God has done frequently throughout their history. When you think that this is the end of the Jewish nation, God always does something remarkable. Um, there's a, there's a city, when you leave Tel Aviv and drive toward Jerusalem, you pass by Modine. And the, um, the little city of Modine and the ruins of Modine are important because when some of Antiochus Epiphanes' um, soldiers went to Modine, he, they tried to make Mattathias a priest there in Modine, one of the priests of families in Modine, to again eat swine, repudiate the, Germ- the, the Jewish faith. Well, Mattathias uh, refused. And what actually happened was a revolt started there in Modine. Um, Mattathias' son was named Judas. We know him in history as Judas Maccabeus, uh, the Maccabees, the book of Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus. You may know the famous um, um, musical composition on Judas Maccabeus. Um, the Maccabee, Maccabee means the hammer. It's a nickname. So Judas Maccabeus is Judas the hammer. Well, Judas led the revolt against the uh, Seleucid Empire in Antiochus. And again, God had to be on their side because uh, they, they, they ran the uh, um, Seleucid Greeks out of town. And when they ran them out of, the, out of the city of Jerusalem, out of the region, one of the things the Jewish people had to do, uh, the revolt went on from about 168 before Christ to the winter of 164, 165 uh, before Christ. Uh, when, when they recaptured the city, when the Jews recaptured the city and the, and the temple, they had to rededicate the temple. It had been extremely desecrated. Again, they were offering pigs to Zeus there in the temple. So um, they um, rededicated the temple. Hanukkah is the feast of rededication, or the feast of dedication. They rededicated the temple. You remember, if you don't know it from biblical history, maybe you know it from Adam Sandler, you remember um, the Hanukkah miracle. You know, when they rededicated the temple, there was a menorah in the temple. Jews like the menorahs, those, um, um, the menorah, which the menorah for the temple and the menorah for um, Hanukkah are actually different. And I'll show you how they are, are different. If I give you a full screen, you'll see how it's different. That's a Hanukkah um, menorah. It's called uh, Hanukkah. And the reason it's different, uh, the, the menorah that's connected with just Jewish worship of the temple is seven-pronged. You notice this, how many prongs are on this candle? This candelabra, this menorah. They'll tell you eight, but you sure you see nine, don't you? The reason is that middle candle is called the shamish. We'll say a word about that in a minute. That's the servant candle because it's eight nights. The shamish, that big candle in the middle, is what, what you use to light the eight. 
which they'll refer to as an eight-branched eight uh, menorah. Anyway, the Hanukkah miracle was when they did, rededicated the temple, they, they, they relit the menorah. They only had enough prepared oil for one night, and God took care of them again. So miraculously, what happened? Eight nights. It burned for eight nights. So that's why Hanukkah is eight nights. Also, it may be because when Solomon dedicated the temple, when Hezekiah rededicated the temple in his day, they had eight-day celebrations. Anyway, Hanukkah became an eight-day celebration, but uh, the miracle attached to it is the, the fact that the, the candle burned for eight days. So um, this holiday popped up before Jesus, after Old Testament. So it is a minor Jewish holiday. It's not a major Jewish holiday. It's a minor Jewish holiday. Um, and this is the background of what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 10. Again, the word Hanukkah does not, or rededication, feast of dedication, feast of lights, feast of renewal. Uh, it's not referenced in the Old Testament at all because it popped up in that interim period. Uh, it's a festival, if you know some Jews, you'll notice it's a festival of lights. But really the theme behind Hanukkah is God will save us. God will save us from a tyrant, such as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was not the first tyrant the Jews had to be saved from and was not the last tyrant the Jews had to be saved from. Um, so if you listen to Hanukkah music, they're, they're really talking about how they prevail over oppression, how they prevail over a tyrant, how God looks after them. The hymn, the hymn connected with Hanukkah is, and it's not ours, we have a Christian version of Rock of Ages. They have a Jewish version of Rock of Ages that they sing connected with Hanukkah. Pull it up and listen to it sometime. It's a powerful hymn, but it talks about how, you know, tyrants will come to an end. God, God will eventually, God's going to protect his people. And no tyrant, whether it's a Antiochus Epiphanes or an Adolf Hitler, will prevail against uh, the, the Jewish people. Uh, anyways, that's sort of the holiday of, of Hanukkah. Uh, festival of dedication, festival of lights, festival of rededication to rededicate the temple, festival of renewal, both to renew the temple, but also just the, the way the oil kept renewing itself miraculously. Um, I, the dreidel, you may, you know, if you're Jewish, you eat potato pancakes, um, you, um, uh, you, you give gifts, you get one each night, you give gifts on the eight nights of Hanukkah, um, they, they play the dreidel, which is the first picture I had up there, they, they play the dreidel, the kids play the dreidel, um, and you may be familiar with the dreidel. I don't know how many Jewish folks you've, you've, you've known. My computer will. You know, the dreidel's like a, like a top uh, that you spin. And then, but if you notice what's on the dreidel, I don't know if you've ever noticed what's on the dreidel. It's four-sided, and you notice that those are Hebrew letters. There's a Hebrew letter on each side of the dreidel. Um, the, it's an acronym. Uh, it's the first Hebrew letter of, of some words. But for, for dreidels, what's, what's on the side of those dreidels is the, the four letters that remind them of the sentence, a great miracle happened there. Uh, and, of course, the great miracles, Judas Maccabeus conquering Antiochus Epiphanes, getting the temple back, Jerusalem back, rededicating it. Um, I always found it interesting, dreidels around the world say, 
have those letters that remind you of a great miracle happened there. If you go to Israel and buy a dreidel, guess what it says? A great miracle happened here. Yeah. Uh, but that, those are the dreidels that the kids will play with. But anyway, Jesus would have known all not about the dreidel, but he would have known all about Judas Maccabeus and how um, uh, the Seleucid Greeks were ran out of town, what his people went through under Antiochus Epiphanes. So Hanukkah got developed, so it was developed by the time of Jesus. Look at chapter 10, verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, you should have a footnote that says that Feast of Dedication. The word Hanukkah means dedication. So it's the Feast of Hanukkah in Hebrew, the Feast of Dedication. But what you need to see before you start reading here is what comes before and after this text. Um, up to, and we're going, we will return to this eventually. From the beginning of chapter 7 of John's Gospel until verse 21 of chapter 10, he's in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Booths. Well, the Feast of Booths has ended. We don't know really how much time. We, we know some time had to pass, but it could be another year even possibly. It's probably the same year. Um, but between verse 21 and verse 22, uh, you already know like the Festival of Booths we paid attention to back in October. The Festival of Hanukkah, uh, again, it's a lunar calendar. So the earliest Hanukkah can come is the 28th of November, our calendar, 28th of November. It can last anywhere from 28th of November to the 28th of December. This year it came early. Because it started, um, or actually it could be as early as the 27th. It started on the 28th this year. So it's about as early as Hanukkah can happen that is happening right now. Um, so up to verse 21, he's celebrating the Festival of Booths, which would have been sometime in September to October. So some time passes now at verse 22. He's, he's still in Jerusalem, still at the temple, celebrating Hanukkah. But what's important, look at, look at chapter 11. Verse 1, you see what happens right after the text we're looking at. What happens right after the text is the whole story about Lazarus. So when you hit chapter 11, verse 1, you're within a week of the Passion. You're actually the Sunday before Easter, the Sunday before the Sunday of Easter. Because in John's Gospel, it really is the raising of Lazarus in Bethany, right over the hill from Jerusalem, is, is the raising of Lazarus that makes the Jewish religious leaders say, we, we got to do something with this man. It's getting hard to counteract this man when he's raising the dead. So uh, it, it, the spark that sort of leads to the crucifixion uh, from a historical perspective uh, is Lazarus. So that's why in chapter 11 to the end, you're in the last week. So in a sense, this text we're looking at ends the public ministry of Jesus. And you need to hold that in, in your brain as you look at what's in this text. Uh, this ends the public ministry of Jesus. And then chapter 11, you start in the week that becomes the Passion Week. So this, this text that we're looking at is at a very critical spot in John's Gospel. Um, it's at the very end of his three-year ministry before his final week. And you're going to see what happens. So now back to the text. Verse 22, chapter 10. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Again, we know that because we know when Hanukkah occurs. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Um, I'm going to show you kind of how brilliant you are because it doesn't take a lot of... Why is he walking in the colonnade? 
is winter. Thank you. It's cold. No, the colonnade, that's, that's the colonnade of the temple. Colonnade's just a covered walkway. Yeah, it's wintertime. It's cold. So he's walking in the temple precinct, but you're told he's walking in Solomon's colonnade. That's the eastern part of the, the perimeter of the temple proper. And it's covered, so that's why it's winter. Uh, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, th- they did think that maybe, maybe that contained some of the original temple of Solomon. Remember, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, got rebuilt, and that's why Jesus is second temple. Uh, anyway, so there he is. So watch what happens. So the Jews, and again, we know who these folks are. They're not the, all the Jews that ever lived or even all the Jews that lived in Jerusalem. These are the religious leaders of the Judeans, the Udioi, the religious leaders. So the Jews, the religious leaders, gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us? I think you need to emphasize the us there. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Part of what's happening here, these are the religious leaders. They're in Jerusalem, the Udioi, the Judean religious leaders in Jerusalem. If, if you think you're Messiah, you think you're the Messiah that the people have been waiting on, on for centuries, one of the first things you should do, according to the religious leaders, is you come let the religious leaders check you out. You come let the religious leaders interview you. You come let the religious leaders examine you to determine whether or not they believe you are the Messiah. Well, Galileans know he is because they saw all of his miracles. So what's going on here is this some petty power stuff. You know, what they've been wanting all along is Jesus to pay them a little more attention, to come to them and say, examine me, talk to me, and please let me be the Messiah. Please affirm that I'm the Messiah. You know, let me get your seal of approval. Well, Jesus has not seemed very concerned about getting their seal of approval. And that's why I think you need to emphasize the word us here. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You know, they want him brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders in Judea, so that the religious leaders can um, uh, give a seal of approval or not. They probably would not have, but or not. So notice how Jesus answers them. That's why this is almost, this. you can't see this as the climax of his public ministry. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. So he says, I've given you all the information you need, and you, don't, you, you didn't believe. Uh, they were, they would, he, he would have never satisfied the Judean religious leaders, um, even though they thought it was their job to be satisfied. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So he says, you've seen what I've been doing. You've seen the, the works, the Passion Translation, which is a good contemporary translation, translates this Greek word, the beautiful works, the beautiful works I've been doing. You've seen the beautiful works I've been doing. That should be sufficient, religious leaders, for you to give me your stamp of approval. Uh, but he said, you've seen these, um, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Well, again, you've seen him doing this already in the Gospel of John. He's not trying to win friends and influence those Judean leaders. He knows their hearts. For those Sadducean Judean religious leaders who are making out well under Roman occupation because Rome's letting them kind of run the temple and run Jerusalem, um, he knows what's in their heart. And he, and he says, you're, you're, you're not among my sheep. Now, part of what's here, 
all of chapter 10. Chapter 10 is where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd earlier. Um, you need to kind of put Ezekiel 34 in your brain behind this. In Ezekiel 34, uh, that's where God was speaking to the Judean religious leaders during the time of Ezekiel and saying, you have been bad shepherds for my people. You have been bad shepherds for my people. You have not fed them, but you have fed yourselves. And so there's quite a, quite a harangue against the Judean religious leaders as bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34. And that text was well known in uh, Jesus' day. So um, he, he's, he's, he's building on Ezekiel 34. And again, he's, he's not trying to make friends with these people. He's building on Ezekiel 34. And he's reminding them, you know, God has said about you that you're not good shepherds and you're not even part of my flock. So that's why I have all this shepherd-sheep imagery in John, John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them. The word snatch there does imply some violence. By the time people first were reading the Gospel of John, by the time it was first penned, um, Christians were being persecuted being cast out of the synagogues, being persecuted, being declared her heretics by the Jews there in Jerusalem. So um, the first community that ever would have read the Gospel of John were suffering. And um, here Jesus says, um, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them, treat them violently, pull them out of my hand. Uh, this is the author of John reminding his community of the promise of Jesus that no matter what your enemies do to you, they're not going to snatch you. No matter how much violence, they're not going to snatch you out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then here he says another one of those statements that's going to really infuriate the people, these religious leaders, I and the father are one. Now again, if I walked in here and said me and God are one, you got two options. You either say, he must, he, he's, I'm either I'm right or I'm wrong. <laughs> There's only two options I've got. Uh, and, you know, if, if, I, if I'm not one with God, then I'm a lunatic or a liar. Uh, here's Jesus saying, you know, I and the Father are one. You don't even have to read the next sentence. You know how the Judean religious leaders are going to respond to that one. But the next sentence says the Jews, the Udaioi, the Judean religious leaders, picked up stones again. This is not the first time in John's gospel. Picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus, oh, by the way, Leviticus gives them the right to do that. If he is blaspheming, that's the charge. If he is blaspheming, claiming to be one with God, claiming a unique relationship with God, yeah, book of Leviticus says we can stone those people when you run across them. So um, these religious leaders legally could do this. Well, actually they couldn't because Rome was in power. And you know the story about Jesus. They couldn't transact um, capital punishment. They had to go to Pontius Pilate, get him to do that. But, you know, if Rome wasn't there, they would have had the legal right to do this. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Um, he's really almost playing with these religious leaders. You know, he says, okay, what are you going to stone me for? Making water to wine? You're going to stone me for healing people? Um, you've seen my good works. Which of these 
are you going to stone me for? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. He just said, I and the Father are one. He said several things like that in the Gospel of John. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. These Judean religious leaders are better theologians and understand Jesus better than some Christians I run across. Uh, they, they're right. They're right as to who Jesus is claiming to be. And he, he's saying, you know, um, um, you make yourself God. They're right, but they, they refused to believe they were right, and they wanted to kill Jesus for blasphemy because they knew what Jesus was claiming. Look at verse 34, and we're going to tie this back to Hanukkah in a minute. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Um, again, this word Jesus is kind of playing with, that's probably not the right word. Um, he, he's showing his superior intellect over those Judean religious leaders. The law here is being used very broadly. It means the whole Hebrew Bible. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the word law, sometimes the word Pentateuch, sometimes the word Torah can just be the five books of Moses or can just be the laws there in the five books of Moses or can just be the whole shebang. Here we, we know it is, it's used broadly because he's going to quote from Psalm 80. He's going to quote from Psalm 82. He says, is it not written in your law? And then he quotes from Psalm 82. I said, you are, you are gods. In Psalm 82, if you go back and look at it, there is, um, in that psalm, uh, some of the powerful people, some of the Davidic rulers, we don't know exactly who it's referencing, but he's talking about some of the, some of the good guys in the um, history of the Hebrew people, and they're, they're referred to as Elohim. Elohim is the name for God, one of the biblical names for God. So uh, there is precedent there in the um, in, in Psalm 82 where uh, really, really great people are called kind of God's little g, God's. And that's why it's a little g here in your English. And, and you know, we know what the psalmist is doing. They're just, he's just saying there's been certain people in history who have had such a connection to God. They've ruled like God. Remember, David was called the son of God in the Hebrew Bible. So he's just, Jesus is pointing out to them how in one of the psalms, there's a phrase that says, uh, is, is it not renewed law? I said, you are gods. Well, again, he's showing his superior intellect. If he called them, if Jesus is going on to say, if he called them gods, whoever he's talking to back in the book of Psalms, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, there's a lot of Christians that need to meditate on that passage for a little while. Uh, the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek word, there is you can translate in your bibles it literally means broken scriptures cannot be broken but uh some of your english bibles may help you out there uh you can translate that annulled eradicated um denied found in error the word's a pretty broad word in the greek it does mean broken but it means all of the above the word of god cannot be denied broken in error uh, annulled. Again, I know some Christians need to hear Jesus say that one again. But, you know, he's quoting the Bible to them, and then he just inserts, and the Scripture cannot be annulled, denied, um, broken, uh, done away with, eradicated. Then he says in verse 36, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into this world, you are blasphemed because I said I am the Son of God? What he's doing here, this, this is a rabbinic art, argument, 
Rabbis argue this way all, all the time. The rabbinic argument is called kavahomer. And it's an argument that literally means something like from, from, the, um, from, the, from, from light to heavy, from, um, from, from great to lesser. Or, in other words, it's an argument that kind of says, if, if X is true, then see how that makes Y true. So the argument he's making here, and rabbis love to do this, is he's saying, you know, if back in the Old Testament, whole sorts of people were called gods, why are you coming at me for calling, I'm calling myself God? Well, obviously, he, he means something different than the Hebrew Bible meant. But I think he's kind of playing with the Judean religious leaders here, showing a superior intellect, showing, that, showing them that they don't know the scriptures well, that they say they do. So he's sort of, he, he knows he's, he's, his time is limited. He knows these people have just about reached their limit as far as dealing with him. And they have, verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? The word consecrated there, Jesus is saying the Father consecrated and sent me into the world. You can translate that dedicated. In Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication. Uh, the temple was set apart, was rededicated, um, was reconsecrated for sacred purposes. Well, here Jesus is almost doing a play on the term of Hanukkah when he says, God, sent, God consecrated me and sent me into the world. We'll, we'll come back a little more to Hanukkah. Um, you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blasphemed because I said I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, again, Jesus has kept pushing back to that. You know, because when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, we Christians would say, we, we say they're, they're one by nature. They're one by passion. Jesus is particularly emphasizing they're one by, by their work. They both do the same kind of work. They both heal, they both redeem, they both save, they both deliver. So that's why he got this emphasis from Jesus in John's gospel about how his works bear witness to who he is. Because he's doing the same thing the Father is doing. Um, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, he sought they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Um, we've always looked at that and said, hmm. Here they are gathered around him in the temple, colonnade, yeah, still there, in the colonnade of Solomon. They're gathered around him holding stones, wanting to stone him, but somehow he escapes. Now, if you do read the Passion Translation, which I am fond of, it is, it's, it's sort of, Translation paraphrase, but I think the um, person that produced the Passion Translation, um, I, I guess I like it because I agree with them about 80% of the time. He actually translates this verse, but he escaped miraculously from their hands. Um, I think that may be implied here. You know, I think it's implied here. Because, I mean, how, do you, how would you have escaped from the colonnade of Solomon surrounded by these screaming, angry Judean religious leaders who are holding rocks in their hands. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is just not there. There's a few places in the Gospels where a miraculous escape, it might be, it might be implied. 
you know, in the book of Acts, you're told about that happening to Philip, right? He's in one spot at one point, and he's in another pot, spot a little bit later. Anyway, however, Jesus gets away from him, walks away from him. So now what you see how this whole section ends, how it's presented as ending. Because again, when you get to chapter 11, Nazareth, the Sunday before all the passion stuff and the following Sunday's resurrection. Notice how it ends. And most time you might just read right across this and not pay a lot of attention to it. Notice how it ends. He went away again across the Jordan. Okay, so he's having to leave Jerusalem. He's having to go, let's say, 15 miles to the Jordan River, out into the Judean desert there in the Jordan River. Um, so he's going a distance. He's going, you ought to say, hmm, wonder why he's going there. Well, John's gospel is going to sort of tell you. He went away again across the Jordan River to the place where John had been baptizing at first. He's going back to where he was baptized. Um, some of you have been with me. This was only open in the year 2000. Some of you have been with me to the 90% guaranteed actual spot of Jesus' baptism. Who Out in the desert? I know, yeah, Lainey did because you're recent. For, for years they took you to a place up on the Sea of Galilee to show you baptism. And it's sort of a Disneyland version of a spot where you can go and remember the baptism of Jesus. Um, but the real bad, I mean, we have it, it geographically spelled out for us here and in other places. It's, it's across from Jericho. Uh, in, in the first chapter of John, you're actually told this spot is called Bethany beyond the Jordan, as opposed to the Bethany near Jerusalem where um, Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived. So we know he was being baptized. John was baptizing at the Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is across from the, uh, Jer- Jericho in the Judean desert. Um, this, this only got opened in the year 2000 because it's historically has been in no man's land between Jordan uh, and Israel. Uh, when you ride out to it, um, Laney probably remembers this, when you ride out to it, I never have any trouble with anybody wanting to wander out there from me because when you ride out there to it on the bus, and actually Jordan and Israel created this. They should do more of that kind of stuff. But Jordan and Israel created this because the Pope in the year 2000 wanted to go to this spot. So when you drive out there now and you're in the Judean desert, on both sides of the road, you see these signs that say, um, do not enter landmines because that was no man's land between Jordan and Israel during the conflicts. But it, they've paved a road, took you, take you to the River Jordan. And if you remember, uh, we're on the Israeli side. Um, actually, you know, it, it, it's not as wide as this room, the Jordan River. So we're on the Israeli side. Over here's the Jordan side. Um, and there's Jordan soldiers, and we got our Israeli soldiers. And I can't imagine anybody wanting to swim the muddy Jordan to go to Jordan or vice versa. But they're just protective of what they have over there. So, but actually, it's on that side, the Jordan side, is where Bethany across the Jordan would have been. That's what it's referred to as in John in the first chapter of John. Anyway, so uh, for those of you who've been out there in the real baptismal spot in the desert of Jordan, um, this is the spot Bethany across the Jordan in the desert across from Jericho. He goes back to that spot. Um, hmm. He knows he's at the end of his ministry because he knows the week that's coming. 
he goes back to the spot where he was consecrated, where he was baptized. Um, you can just, you can write your fictionalized account and think about maybe all the reasons why he's done this now. But he goes back to where it started. He goes back to where he's baptized. It goes, I mean, when he's baptized, he comes up out of the water and the, you know, God and the dove declare him to be my son in whom I'm well pleased. So is there at the Jordan River. He was commissioned to be Messiah. So here at the end of his uh, public ministry in John's gospel, he goes back out there. John, go, of course, John's long, not long gone, but John's gone by this point. Look at verse 41. It gets more interesting. And many came to him, just like they did to John the Baptist. They're coming to him out there in the desert. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So they're all coming to Jesus now, and they're saying, we remember what John the Baptist said about you or him, and everything that John the Baptist said about you or him came true. And then um, verse 42, you need to um, see it as a summary of the first 10 chapters of John's gospel. And many believed in him there. Again, the Passion Translation tries to help us out. The Passion Translation say, and many believed in him at the Jordan. In other words, I think what John's gospel wants you to see is, you see how he was not received in Jerusalem, not received by the religious leaders, not received by those who thought they were in the know regarding the Bible, not received by those who were in the know because what they, they, knew, they knew what Messiah was supposed to do. We just saw how he, he wasn't received by the Judean religious leaders. Goes out here in the desert... Many, many believed in him there. So I think that's supposed to be a con- you contrast this. These simple folks that are coming to him out there in the desert, believing, contrast them with the, the religious scholars there in Jerusalem running the temple. So again, why is he doing this on Hanukkah? Now this is uh, obviously a Christian um, take on this. But we know it's not accidental. He's doing this at Hanukkah. His, his last public appearance is during Hanukkah. He goes and spends some time in the desert, just like he did at the beginning of his ministry, you remember. Remember, he spent 40 days, 40 nights out in the desert. It looks like he, 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 he spends a significant period of time um, because we know he doesn't get killed till Passover. So when you get to chapter 11, some time has elapsed. It may, he may be spending another 40 days or extended period of time out in the desert, just like he did at the beginning of his ministry. But um, So why Hanukkah? Well, think about the meanings of Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Well, Jesus, light of the world. I showed you the Shamish candle, the big candle in the middle. You use to light the little ones, one each night. Uh, you only light that candle in the darkness after sundown. You, you burn your menorah, your, your uh, Hanukkah, your Hanukkah menorah, uh, only at night. The Shamish candle in the center is what you use to light the other candles in the darkness. You know what Shamish means in Hebrew? Servant candle. So the servant is bringing the light to all those other candles in the darkness. I hope you're connecting some dots here, how we Christians are looking at this and saying, hmm, makes good sense to us. Jesus, light of the world. Jesus fitting himself into Hanukkah. Uh, Also keep in mind that when you look at Hanukkah, 
it, it was about, remember how much we've talked about how Jesus is the new temple, right? Again, go back to the Maccabeans. What is Hanukkah about? They got their temple back. Their temple was rededicated, and they could go back to worshiping in their temple. A new temple has showed up now. He's already told you in John's gospel, he's the new temple. He is the one that's fulfilling this that piece of that construction. So, you know, Hanukkah is about the restoration of true worship. Again, connect the dots to Jesus there. So there you got light, restoration of true worship. And again, um, particularly particularly in modern era, Hanukkah has become almost way beyond the Jewish community, a celebration, an anti-oppressor celebration, a celebration that says all tyrants will fail and fall, a celebration that says good will prevail. You know, the Antiochus Epiphanies of the world and all the people who have come in line in the line of Antiochus Epiphanies, they will all fail. So Hanukkah is also a little bit like Passover, a celebration of um, deliverance and freedom. Well, again, you should be able to connect the dots to Jesus as we're talking about deliverance and freedom. Um, you know, I even, another dot that I connect, because I'm very fond of my Jewish brothers and sisters, is, I mean, God would have worked it out somehow, I'm sure. God would have worked it out. But if Hanukkah had not happened, if Hanukkah had not happened, if Judas Maccabeus had not revolted against um, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid Greek Empire and miraculously won. You know, as a miracle with the oil, but it's really a miracle that Judas Maccabeus, that it was a guerrilla warfare between those Jews that rose up in revolt and won between 168 and 165. If, if Judas Maccabeus had not succeeded, which is still amazing, if he and his guerrilla warfare, Greek Empire was not as big as the Roman Empire, but it rival, would, would, would rival what would eventually be the Roman Empire. If Judas Maccabeus hadn't succeeded in that revolt, it's, it's like the book of Esther. If Esther had not saved, if Esther had not gotten Haman in trouble and saved the Jewish community, they'd all been slaughtered. They would have all been slaughtered under Antiochus Epiphanes. A third of them in Europe got slaughtered under Adolf Hitler. But somehow it always seems as if God saves his people. And so the Jews were saved. And 165 years later, here comes Jesus. If Hanukkah hadn't happened, if, if all that story of Hanukkah hadn't happened, um, historically you wouldn't have had a Jesus. The Jews would have been gone. They'd have been eradicated. That was what Antiochus Epiphanes was after. It would have been eradicated. So there's a sense, uh, particularly Messianic Jews, uh, Jews who believe in Christ, will tell you, yeah, Hanukkah is like the preparation for Jesus. God could not let the Jews be destroyed there under the Seleucid Greeks. Just like God would not let them be destroyed under Hitler. God would not let them be destroyed under Stalin. Um, it's amazing they still exist with all the, all the people who have tried to destroy the Jewish, the Jewish nation. So there's a lot of connections with Hanukkah, uh, between Jesus and Hanukkah. Um, anyway, that's probably enough about Jesus and Hanukkah. Um, so let's, let's stop there.